Hey, Carl here to say that Music to Code By is now an app called Music to Flow By. Now you can listen to the tracks on your phone with offline capability. The first three tracks are free, and the entire catalog is available by subscription with a new track arriving every month. Just go to musictoflowby.com for all the links. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're here at uh, Connect. Uh, Mitra Azizarad is here. We're going to talk to her in just a few minutes. But uh, uh, do you want to say anything about Connect? We don't. We haven't really said much about this well, event. I think we've always been invited to this show, but it's often conflicted with other things. So it was tough to actually get here. I'm excited that we're actually here now. Right. We've already seen the keynote, which is amazing. I mean, it was just ripping fast. So but much. But the differences about. between like Ignite and Connect and Build. I mean, those are three. Very different shows. Very different shows. We're going to have to ask Mitra about that because I think it's her show. She she knows better than anybody what the differences yeah. are. Okay, we'll do that. So let's roll the music then for a little bit. We call Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? Uh, I found this really cool blog post called Modern JavaScript Explained for Dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I didn't find it. I can't take credit. Appy Nexter J. Stulo uh, found this and posted it on our Slack channel. And it, it's what it's really good uh, about doing is is sort of answering these big why questions about why JavaScript is so complicated and why you know why do we have to do all this stuff? It starts with two dinosaurs talking to each other <laughs> in a cartoon, and it says, "Front end devs used to just need HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Now apparently they need to learn about Node, NPM, Grunt, Gulp, Webpack, Babel. Wait up! What the heck do I need Node for on the front end?" That's right, funny. So these dinosaurs are talking, and so this really speaks to old school developers who mm. just don't understand what the heck is going on in JavaScript and why there's so many tribes and why there's so many different tools and why these things don't just work together the way they should and why do i have to learn all this new stuff so that's really cool i thought it was a really good thing i'm that's about all i want to say about it though i'm going to let you read it and just go there because you know this is show 1498 you go to 1498.plop.me you will find it awesome that's it Good so, one, who's talking to us today, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 1479, the one we did with Mr. Skeet, John Skeet, yeah. when we were in London at Prognet. To, and we were really, we ended up talking about diagnostics primarily. Right. But I would think about like, serious modern developer skills. That mm -hmm. is a big one, right? Yeah. It's just the ability to really diagnose a problem. And Casey Collins has this comment where he said, the timing on this episode has been perfect. John's comment that we have to get better at diagnosis is spot on. I've been working on production issues with a newer application earlier this week, and I found myself in a familiar situation where I have to explain the issue, my analysis of the issue, and my hypothesis of how to fix said issue. Of course, others are working on the issue, throw in random, are you sure it's not the unrelated item over here? Yeah. Uh, you know there's somebody in the back saying, if you've just written in Ruby on Rails, you wouldn't have this problem. I know, yeah. uh, and I yeah. have to step them through why this isn't a factor. So, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to see Casey's viewpoint here of he's done the diagnostics, then it has to prove that he's done the diagnostics to even mm. attempt a fix. Right. He goes on to say, I've worked with many individuals in our industry who lack the critical thinking ability and just want a solution to make the bleeding stop because the boss is breathing down their neck for it to get fixed. It's like, keep whacking it with a hammer. Maybe it'll get better. <laughs> Uh, if we are I like given the Richard interpretation, that's really good. <laughs> you like the interpretation? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <it's> good. 
If we are given the chance to explore, experiment, and learn from these situations, then we can be confident about how fixing the issues permanently rather than just band-aiding them over. Mm. Of course, not everyone has the chance to develop those critical thinking skills. I attribute mine to years of help desk experience and having to mm. walk users through troubleshooting over the phone. That's a good thought. Like mm-hmm. Help desk folks learn to be very methodical when you're dealing with people that are maybe a little overwhelmed and angry. Mm. It's a good combination. Maybe employers should require everyone in IT and software to serve some time as help desk from time to time to keep those critical thinking skills sharp. I would also say uh, in engineering skills, some of the best developers I've ever met were electrical engineers by trade. And that those skills carry really well. Well, it's about problem solving, like like John said. Mm-hmm. And thinking know, the, comprehensively. The engineering mind. Uh, so, Casey, totally on board with your thoughts. Thanks so much for them. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We preserve him in formaldehyde. Really? For future archaeological <laughs> exploration. <laughs> All right. Now let's answer that whole question about Connect. But Mitra Azizarad is here. She is Corporate VP of Cloud Application Development, Data and AI Marketing, Leading Product Marketing for Developer and Data Platform Offerings, Spanning Visual Studio, Xamarin, .NET, SQL Server, Azure Data Services, and for artificial intelligence-related products and services such as Cognitive Services, Azure Bot Service, among many others. Mitra is also responsible for Microsoft's AI commercial and development strategy to democratize AI and make it accessible to every developer. Her team is responsible for the Connect event, as Richard mentioned in the comment. Uh, hey, thanks for having us. Show. Yeah, thanks. thanks so much for being here. Yeah, Thank it's, you. It's a great show. It's really fun. But it's a different style of show. Yes. And um, it is a different style because it started out in a very different way. Mm. Um, I actually came up with the idea for Connect about four or five years ago um, because we really wanted to make sure that we had a place to tell the story in a very open way, I would say. Mm. Um, when um, we first did the first connect and the very first connect actually wasn't even named connect. We, but we did come to New York and we, mm-hmm. um, had, we were doing a visual studio launch and we brought Azure into it and we said, we're going to really take a cross company approach to this. Um, but the idea at the time was to bring folks like Xamarin on stage. And right. quite frankly, at that time, I got a little bit of a hard time. Now we're talking about four or five, four or five years, years ago. ago. So before they required before and, I, yeah. and, um, but we were partnering with them and mm-hmm. we thought, wow, folks really do need to get the memo. Right. Um, um, and we created this mantra that we have, which is any developer, any application, any platform right. way back when. Yeah. Um, and when when Satya became CEO, it was actually, um, he tweeted that and it was actually his second most uh, popular tweet after the one of becoming CEO. Right. And he did that, wow. I think, at our, our second connect right after becoming CEO. Um, now it seems very natural. In fact, I saw yeah, tweets I just today. Realizing you were doing that five years ago. That is kind of the mantra of Microsoft right. now. Yeah, now it is. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I would say we saw tweets today because our whole thing has always been the opening demo is the thing you don't expect, mm-hmm. right? It, it is, it's what are we doing on the Mac? What are we doing, you know, with Linux? What are we doing? And we started last year, you know, joining the Linux Foundation. Yeah. We did, we 
we um, open we did open sourcing of .NET Core at uh, at uh, Connect. Mm -hmm. We also brought Google on stage um, two years back uh, around TypeScript and uh, VS Code. Yeah. Um, and that was also I mean we had the gall to ask and they accepted. Mm -hmm. I and, you know I, I say gosh how much would it take for a competitor to come on stage and tout how much they actually love right. your tools? You know they must really <laughs> love it. And so I so really true. feel about for developers I am developer's biggest fan. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think in order to do the right thing and have have developers be your fans, you need to be their fan first. And so that's what Connect was about. It was really about meeting developers wherever they are today sure. um, and going on that journey with them. But even if you saw today in our second uh, keynote, a lot around AI, mm -hmm. um, and we have an AI school that we um, are, are rolling out um, today. AI school. AI school. Exactly. Yeah. And so it is very much about um, bringing, you know, this year was a lot about, you saw a lot about data as well. Mm. You saw a lot mm. about um, AI. And it's very much about always being approachable for developers. You know, it, uh, AI is not not just the realm of data scientists. You yeah. don't have to have a PhD to be doing that. Um, and we do want to make sure for the 9 million professional developers out there, 6 million of those developers are .NET. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that they also have a, a big role to play in the industry as it's moving forward. It is interesting to think about AI as a general purpose tool that developers should all incorporate. Um, well, there's tooling, but there's all the other aspects of mm -hmm. it too. I, there's, you know, you saw that we talked about Visual Studio for AI today, yes. but yeah. also even the Databricks um, uh, announcement. And that's an acquisition. It's not an acquisition. No? It's a partnership. Oh, interesting. Okay. It's a first party service. We don't do that very often. No, that's very unusual. It's a first party service, but I would say, um, you know, it takes the best of Azure. It takes the best of Databricks and it's really targeting um, folks, uh, you know, really making sure that those powerful scenarios scenarios that really make AI as easy as possible, that we are putting that in the hands of developers, data engineers, data scientists. Mm. And so that's very much a part of AI, because if you really are interested in doing AI, 80% of AI is data. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so Databricks is focused on the data side yes. problem. Yes. And so, and they're not being acquired. Like when I saw it's them on not stage an today, acquisition. I thought, is this going to be an acquisition? But no, I guess it's just no. a partnership. It's but a first party partnership. So it's uh, it's Azure Databricks. Interesting. And it's so this is not a partnership where you go up into the uh, marketplace and see you right. know a third party. This is actually an integration in between the Azure, Azure console. We're going to see it Databricks. Is. It's an actual Azure service That's in really the console, and it's totally integrated with security with Azure Active Directory um, services. It's the same SLAs, all of that. What mm -hmm. I've been noticing about Azure's cognitive services lately and the things that Azure is doing with AI is that you have these two sort of camps. You have the, the offerings that are just you and your data and your algorithms, yes. and you go ahead and figure it out. And you've got all these really higher level services that use the Azure AI tools, right. and they, they, they have these great big uh cognitive services that j just work and you don't have That's to right. do any of that work. Or they're customizable because a lot of um, sort of packaged cognitive services are very often not customizable, but ours are. are. Mm. So you can either use them as is or you can train them. And that was part of the demo today, right. which is yeah, how Seth easy is it demo. to train? Yeah, Seth always does a great job. <laughs> yeah. I loved the banter. Actually, what I really loved the most about today was, and I, and I really couldn't stop laughing. I think I was annoying the people behind. <laughs> 
remind me was when Scott said, and whatever Mac users wear, I think they wear berets. Yes, wearing berets. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, like the whole row behind me started laughing as well. But um, there, there, there really is this, um, there really is this focus for us around making everything approachable uh, by developers. But I think AI is one of those things that has been in the realm of, oh my goodness, it is creating the models and it's it's all of this thing that's that's really m- much more thought of as something that stays within the data scientist very realm AI. right yeah. very your rarefied av- air your average developer feels intimidated you know trying to figure out how to do that stuff well even business i would say at ignite um in september mm-hmm. what we heard from business people um when we would talk to them one-on-one much much less developers was business people would say you know i know i'm supposed to really get mm-hmm. what people are talking about here and I know yeah. I should really find out what the outcomes are that we can drive um, but I'm just I I'm, you know the, the word that came kept coming up was afraid I'm right. just afraid I'm just afraid I don't really get it and so it really is taking a step back and being yeah. much more outcome based in terms of what right. this gives you yeah, which is why we showed sales. it yes yeah I think one of the issues you have there especially on the business side every time I've worked on a on a data science or, you know, machine learning type project, when it works and provides a competitive advantage to that company, they stop talking about That's it. That's right. It's now secret sauce yep. and they go quiet. So it's almost <laughs> like we never celebrate the wins right. because mm. they're so valuable. Right. They're like, oh, I don't want it anybody else to know what advantage. It becomes this huge yeah. competitive advantage. And so it suddenly gets secretive. As long as it doesn't work, eh, we're happy to talk about it. <laughs> but I can see sort of a, uh, you know, we were talking about the the really high level abstract uh, cognitive services and then the low level do it yourself. Here's your data. Here's your algorithms. I can see a sort of a middle ground happening where you've got these cognitive services set up and, oh, do you have any data you want to plug into this right. to train it better to, right. to, to get the outcomes that you want? Right. Just give us access to that data. And right. then the algorithms are already set up everything, you know. I can see that be, being attractive to business. I would say, people. and that's a very differentiating thing for Microsoft, quite frankly, it, which is um, a lot of uh, folks in the industry from a data perspective will say, your data must be in the cloud and right. you need to start there. Mm. Um, we actually are the only ones that say it doesn't matter where your data is mm-hmm. because right. that is exactly yeah. the thing. Most of the folks, and even from a business perspective, will say, I don't even know where all my data is. Right. I mean, like, how am I? It's not even just industry data. And you you know, a ton of data sits, and this is where Microsoft Graph plays a, a big part in this too, and especially mm-hmm. for developers, is think of all the data that you have locked into your documents, even your PowerPoints, and all well, the kind your, of data. Your email. Your email. Oh, no, it's but crazy. Then, but not not in a creepy way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. But, but I, I know people, you know, I, I put an IT hat on once in a while as an exchange guy. People sometimes use their exchange client as a file server. Yeah, yeah they you do. Know, they're keeping docs and stuff and they're Taking f- notes sorting them in into there. folders yes. and like it all exists in there where nobody else can get at it. Right. Like I think it's one of the strengths of Office 365 is that now that graph takes a hold and you have this tool, Delve is the tool on the mm-hmm. O365 side that actually helps mine that mail That's to right. say, hey, these are assets of the company that other people could value. And you mm. could do more with it. Mm. It's, so for better or worse, they're kind of getting them to the cloud, but not in a very direct way, but just to be able to understand yeah. that data better. But but mm. you want to glean um, intelligence and insight from wherever the data is, mm-hmm. even if it's 
on-prem and locked on-prem, which yeah. in a lot of verticals, it would be. It's easy to Think do, of get finance or public sure, sector. Sure. And yeah. so you saw what Scott talked about today too, even from the database migration service and managed instance and things like that. When you're ready to move to the cloud, we wanted to make it as easy as possible. Mm. But in order to um, get those insights, you don't have to move anything. And that is a very different story. And we do find people take a deep breath once they hear that, because they typically don't hear that. But it sounds like hybrid is the new normal. Hybrid is the new normal. And I don't think that people are moving as quickly as, you know, they, there has to be a reason. Yeah. You know, it's move for movement's sake. Exactly. And we, and we get that, you know, and I think it's the same thing, even, even if I think from an AI perspective, you know, I started with Microsoft a long time ago as, as an engineer in the field Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, working in public sector and, and in, in high security sort of accounts. And I remember working so closely with research um, in those days. We There was, um, uh, I won't give the name of, of, of sort of the agency, but there was a need for some translation technology. Mm-hmm. And look at all the stuff we do with uh, Lewis now and voice yeah. recognition. Yeah. And I'm talking now probably 1993, 1994. Hmm. You know, we always had um, a very strong connection into research and, and we were able, it wasn't productized, there wasn't, no. so, but just to say, we've been working on AI for such a long time. And we were able to provide um, translation technologies and things like that, that really helped, um, you know, solve problems for organizations and companies in those days. And I used to remember, I used to always think at that time is like, why don't we productize? When is this going to be a product? And lo and behold, like what, 20 some years later, but it shows you honestly, because even if you think about machine learning and stuff, what, 40, 50 years, a lot of the, the difference now is the inflection point of compute, right. of the storage, you know, of the hardware, all of those things coming together with the ability to really abstract it at a much simpler level from a software perspective yeah. is now going to make this a very different proposition. And I do think government's a lot less cost sensitive. Like those were national security thinking. Right. And so they've got a bit bigger budget for that stuff. I also think about, you know, OLAP came from intelligence services. Right. Uh, but it, and again, it was really expensive the way they did it. But as that technology matured and it sort of came into the public uh, view, it changed the way we analyze data. It right. was amazing. Right. And this is, this to me feels a lot like another wave of that. Yeah. It that does to me too. That technology. I, I'm not a fan of the AI name just because it's been yeah. around so long. I yeah. think it has negative connotations. Also, and Hollywood got there hooks into that term oh, yeah. and I know. hear that as yes. soon as you've got movies with the name on it it's like, <laughs> yeah. oh man yeah. I, you know you're sort of casting that but yeah. it, it is a big umbrella yes there's a lot of stuff being put especially in the, in the Microsoft space underneath that that AI label I mean That's I'm not right. unhappy that we have it in a can yeah that it is <laughs> it is the deep learning parts and it is machine learning and business intelligence and also the cognitive services like I kind of get that it's all there I'm just right. not f- I'm going to have to get used to using the term AI. We know our definition is that it is um, the way that we look at amplifying human ingenuity Mm -hmm. through intelligent technology. And that it really is AI for us. Right. And so, um, you know, it is important too that it is, you know, we get lots of questions around the data and bias in data Mm -hmm. and things like that. There's all these things that exist in society that are going to exist in your data as well. Yeah. You can't, and quite frankly, you should shouldn't try and eradicate it because then you won't be able to recognize it within the data, you know? And so if you, and who's going to be the purveyor of whether that 
the bias, arbiter of neutrality. The arbiter, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> maybe you're, yeah, maybe you're biased against murder. I don't know. That's a yeah. good bias. Maybe yeah. I don't know. There's things yeah. that you, you know, there's there's things there that we, from a research perspective, work um, very hard on. And I think you know part of the the focus we had with having Professor Hawking um, do a video. It's uh, a really us to get. interesting intro. Yes, I was surprised. That's the second time we. So he mentioned two years ago we had because we um, used. Uh, we worked with them in using .NET to create his uh, his communication system. Mm-hmm. And so he sent his uh, technical assistant here and, and she did some whiteboarding and stuff like that on Channel 9 with us. Mm. But because he's been also so vocal about AI, about AI yeah. in particular, yeah. we thought for developers and, and you know, it's it's uh, there were so many tweets about we are writers, we are dreamers. Right. Everybody mm. really and, and, a, and a number of developers wrote, you know, this isn't just about algorithms. This is you know our, our soul this is this is something this is like our children it sure. was like um, for the maria create. db right when yeah. you when you uh when you create uh, a product over 30 years it becomes like your children sure. kind of thing mm. i think all of that resonated a lot with the developers at least the tweets showed that in in spades because um there is an accountability and an ethical accountability for the people that are shaping the future and how we interact with the world which yeah. is very much applications are a huge part of well, that. And, and physicists right. rammed into this first, right? Yes. I mean, that is the Manhattan Project was right. the ultimate manifestation of physics understanding their ethical issues. Right. And I think software's there now. That's and right. this technology is part of it. Right. Mitra, hold that thought for yes. just one second while we take a moment to pay our bills the word from our sponsors. Hey, Rockheads, this is Carl. Have you tried JetBrains Rider? It's a new cross-platform .NET IDE that's light yet powerful and comes from the makers of ReSharper, IntelliJ, IDEA, and WebStorm. You can write .NET code on Windows, Mac, or Linux. Rider has you covered. Rider helps you develop ASP.NET, .NET Core, .NET Framework, Xamarin, and Unity applications. Most languages used in .NET development are supported. From C-sharp, VB.NET, F-sharp, and XAML, to ASP.NET Razor syntax, JavaScript, TypeScript, and all that other front-end stuff. It comes with navigation, thousands of code inspections, refactorings, unit testing, debugging, rich coding assistance, and more advanced IDE features, powered by proven technology from ReSharper and WebStorm. Download Rider now and take it for a 30-day trial at rider.com. .netrocks.com. That's R-I-D-E-R dot D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S dot com. All right, and we're back. It's .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell here. We're talking to Mitra Azizirad. We're talking AI right now, but uh, um, Mitra, I want to talk to you a little bit because you've been in Microsoft for a long time, and you've been spent the last 10 years in, in Visual Studio, and so you've seen .NET evolve from a Windows, Microsoft-centric Have been a technology. part of that. Yes, <laughs> part of that evolution. Yeah, you've yes. driven it. Yeah. yeah. So so tell us, uh, what what's your take on the .NET ecosystem today and where we've gotten to? I mean, we touched on it a little bit at the beginning, but... Um, you know, it's, I would say that .NET is an example that the rest of the company is actually learning from. Mm-hmm. They actually stand up .NET as an example of, um, you know, as we look at, um, the ecosystem and 
what it is, you know, when you go to take something proprietary open, there's lots of conversations. We had lots Mm. of conversations about what it would mean to do .NET Core. Mm -hmm. We had lots of conversations about what it would mean to do Visual Studio Community or to do things like Dev Essentials Mm. or even the acquisition of Xamarin and what that would mean from a cross-platform perspective and what was the message that we were really delivering. There were were people very afraid if if Xamarin got acquired, it it would break it. Right. That you take away that revenue motive because... You just rolled it into the box. You know, and that was my decision. Quite yeah. frankly, that was wow. as the business owner. That was my decision because I did see that Xamarin adoption was somewhat held back because it was expensive. You know, it, I, it was expensive. I worked with with CTO types who were made. You know, they look at their budget for their dev, and typically they're spending fifteen hundred dollars a year on an MSDN subscription, a premium subscription, maybe another fifteen hundred on uh, a Telerik suite or a DevX suite, something That's like right. that. And then yeah. Xamarin and <laughs> right. iOS was. 1500 bucks or 2000 bucks and Android was 2000 bucks. That's so right. I'm going to spend as much as I spend on a dev for a year again to give me two more platforms. That's right. And it was a challenge to, to approach that. Yes. So in that sense, it's like bringing in knowing it was just going to be part of the box. Okay. Well, you took that cost barrier away. The challenge, of course, is, is it going to keep getting better? I think it That's has. Right. Oh, it definitely has. Yeah. People, people thought that and people thought, wow, if you put the, if you roll that in for free, really right. what I was looking at was how to continue to extend the value proposition mm. to our developers through Visual Studio. And right. quite frankly, that even means at the free level, right? And yeah, so yeah. Visual Studio yeah. Community is has exactly a, the same version of Visual Studio Professional, except that it's, um, it, it, we have a EULA around it, which right. is 250 PCs and, you know, and not more than a million dollars, but it is, that, and even when we did that, that was a very controversial thing. And those were all decisions that even as I looked at our SKU makeup, that I felt were very important decisions to make. Do you get pressure internally saying you're taking a big chunk of revenue off the table when you do that? Uh, Certainly people will ask those questions (laughs) because Visual Studio is a very successful business from Mm -hmm. a revenue perspective. um, And there's not many, there's maybe 16 businesses across Microsoft that are over a certain mark. Yeah. Um, So we've got a lot more than 16 businesses. um, So that tells you that's pretty hefty. And Visual Studio is one of them. Right. Mm. And so when you come in and this was not, you know, this was not a decision taken lightly and it was not a decision taken lightly to even, because Visual Studio Professional is also extensible. Mm -hmm. And so is Visual Studio Community. One of the things even engineering asked me was, are you sure you actually want to keep the extensibility at the, at the free level? Remember the old uh, community edition, the Jamie Carnesale incident? Right, where mm-hmm. the free product didn't have the extensibility stuff. And here was this young man, I think he was 18 or mm-hmm. 19, mm-hmm. who found a way to slip his own unit testing into it and circumvented the EULA. And you get in this situation where Microsoft, you know, needs you to kind of follow the rules. Otherwise, the right. whole contract goes out the window. <laughs> yeah. And he decided to, you know, be the tough guy. Yeah, and I, and I remember talking to some internal studio guys when this was going on. We never did a show about it. We think we talked about it a couple of times. Right. But it's like, He's making a mistake. Like you, you don't back a large corporation into a corner. They right. will lawyer up. <laughs> like that's how this works. But it's interesting that, and I remember when the, when when the essentials came out, and he's like, "Nope, the sensibility model staying in." And yeah. I'm like, well, there will never be another carnage sale event again, ever again. I didn't even think of that. It was That's so more, long ago. Yeah, now. I did. <laughs> and it, that was probably before my Visual Studio time. Sure. But I think, you know, the thing is that when you balance between, at the end of the day, for me, usage 
by developers, whether it's free or it's paid, mm-hmm. is the most important thing. And in fact, I call it that. I don't call it, uh, I call it um, free or paid usage. I right. actually don't say it's this skew or it's that skew because no. usage is, is the commonality there. And I'd much rather people using it regardless of the skew that than, they're than using. Right. And so the issue though is to say, if you make it more and more friction free for developers yeah. to access the technology, it's going to pay off somewhere else in the ladder of platform and products. We're mm-hmm. a platform company first and foremost. Sure. We do put developers at the heart of everything we do. And so that means that, you know, as folks were talking today, developers are craftsmen and so the tools are very important to them. Right. Um, I really feel a, a strong accountability around always making sure that we are doing the right job by developers mm-hmm. and around the tools and that we are removing friction at every point that we possibly can. And so um, when I first came in, I, we actually had 21 different SKUs that were sort of in the Visual Studio family. And it did get a little out of hand. It was out of hand. So mm. one of the first things, you know, we focused on, and I also wanted to extend, I, I thought with Visual Studio Code and all of that was Visual Studio uh, really becomes a family of, of sure, products. Right. Visual Studio is really, whether you use it or not, we've done lots of studies on Visual mm-hmm. Studio uh, with developers, whether you use it or not, it is perceived as a gold standard sure, in the yeah. industry for a t- tool very well done. Yeah. And so that gives an uplift to anything, mm-hmm. you know, at that point. And, and, and how do you best, you know, continue that, that sort of feeling it's not a it's a feeling more than it's a purchase you know and definitely when we're talking to .NET developers there's these two different work styles there's the give me the all-inclusive we'll take care of you everything's in here yeah if you want to customize you can but you know you're living in the happy realm that is the studio IDE yeah versus the more VS code roll your own sure. this editor and editor. that debugger yeah. and this compiling tool right. and this uh, package manager you know you get to pick and choose so it's interesting that that the culture has gone divergent. Like there's two really different approaches to this. Mm-hmm. There, there is, and I a couple of things. One is I think from a .NET developer perspective, especially when we um, went forward with .NET Core and made it open, we had a lot of .NET developers actually evangelizing non Microsoft developers right. to try it. Right, and right. so really a third of the downloads of .NET Core are are non Microsoft developers. Right. Um, 60% of those of the contributions to .NET come from outside of Microsoft. Which cool. And so that's really what we wanted to go for was this healthy ecosystem that also attracts folks to come into it that may never have really maybe there was too much friction or maybe there was it would be too hard for me to even try that yeah and get access to that that's part of our job is to is to remove that it it required a big leap of faith i mean on a lot of parties to to do that and we've we've been talking about just going open you know yeah net core because because of the things that you've been talking about, because of the way that it's perceived, and the you know will the money come, and how are we going to support it, and all of that stuff. That's right. But but uh, you know sometimes that's what you have to do, and uh, it worked out. It did work out. I would say um, I am known for taking risks. That is, <laughs> I've been around a long time, and so there's that reputation. But they're calculated risks. Yeah. You know, in your heart of hearts, you sort of know after a period of time what the right things are. And I and do you think you did it right. <laughs> <laughs> and because I mean, it is true that authentically, I am um, the biggest fan of 
the developer community. Mm. And so I think people under, if you see the changes and you see that they're authentically received well, it's because the reasons behind it are authentic. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, It must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to announce an extensibility model for the mid-show joke. Oh. You basically get to tell your own punchline. (laughs) All right. So here's the setup. Two guys walk into a bar. You'd think the second one would have seen it coming. See? It works. (laughs) (laughs) This is how we do things. It's actually time to give away a de-experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club and become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. And check out their DevExtreme React grid, built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, like the virtual DOM, and state controllers like Redux. It supports master detail, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing. And you can check it out and test it for free on GitHub. And learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Satish Apasani. Hi, congratulations, Satish. Yes. Golf clap for you, sir. And Satish just won the D-Experience subscription from DevExpress, a big pile of awesome from our friends over there, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is... Go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member chosen at random from the .NET Rocks and fan club. it's coming up. Oh, yeah. Not this show. Not this show. <laughs> but soon. It'll be in December, but, but we're right at the end of November here. And you've got to so. sign up to win, so go do that now. Yeah. We also like to ask our guest, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, Mitra, what would you buy? It doesn't have to be developer technology. It could be anything. Oh, are you a gadget person? I am more of a gadget person. Yeah. I um I definitely well I'll tell you what I did just I did just buy because we moved mm-hmm. I did I I have the whole nest and you know ring technology oh, yeah. for the front door oh, and throughout yeah. the whole house and um I was recently overseas and somebody was ringing the doorbell and you know I I, I, I love yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so and I, I I spent probably more than five thousand but I did but I I did like that you that, wired it all up I wired it all and up so you were able to see who was at the front door via phone yeah and, yeah and talk to them that's cool. yeah and so. Uh, uh, yeah, so I um yeah. I'm it's an early adopter. When, yeah, <laughs> kind of funny when they ding dong in your phone you say hello and they say yeah I got a package. Can you open the door you didn't say I'm in South America. Yeah. Right <laughs> Actually well, there was just that Amazon They don't believe thing. that you're not home, though. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it just works. <laughs> yeah. There was that Amazon thing recently where you're, what if you actually oh, use yeah. a lock? They you let could them, go in. And you yeah. actually yeah. let them I unlock the never. door? Right. That was generally the reaction of everybody. It's like, ah, sorry. kidding not me? really going to yeah, let the Who would do that, person honestly? Who would do that? That's actually a good question to ask your listeners. Yeah, would you do that? I don't yeah. think anybody would. I know. Yeah. But it's also, you know, 
on one hand, I'm like, why are they doing it? On the other hand, it's like, it turns out not everything Amazon does is perfect. <laughs> so why don't why doesn't Amazon sell a box with a, a remotely openable lid that's locked and you put it right outside your door and then they could put the like a dog stuff in latch there. or yeah. dog you know where like like the, just right. a little piece opens up just a and place they can secure it. and if yeah. they made it refrigerated, all the better. Yeah, <laughs> so they can drop your beer in there. The, the fridge mailbox, the fridge mailbox, which is just outside the house. Yeah, I don't know if I want them inside the house. Yeah. That's fair. A uh, little digression. Yes. Is I read uh, your whole LinkedIn background, too. Oh, I'm sorry. It's <laughs> all right. You've, you've had, you were chief of staff to Mr. Bomber for a year. Yes. Is that correct? For close to, for close to two years. Two yeah. years. Wow. That's got to be amazing. Um, well, it was... Um, I. I was in the field for the first uh, 12 years of my, my career at Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were a number of opportunities to come to corporate. I always turned them down because I thought I was more of a field person. Sure. And I think it's a really interesting dynamic that you can only go so far in the field and then just the gravity of Redmond pulls on you. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it, Steve had actually offered me a job several times. I actually had um, had turned them down. Wow. This, wow. Was, this was one where I really had said, okay, I'll only... I'll only come for a year. And then the discussion was, well, at least come for two years. Cause I always thought I would go back to the field. Right. Um, and now here it's been 14 years that you I never left, that right? I never left <laughs> because yeah. the opportunities to do things at, um, at such an international scale sure. um, and the impact, uh, you know, the things I'm not one of those people that ever asks folks what their three to five year plans are because no. I've never. And the thing is that sometimes when opportunity knocks, you don't even know what's behind that decision it would be oppor- mm-hmm. it wouldn't be opportunity if you didn't if you knew right. what it was going to happen right. because my whole thing was to go back you sure. know and so and so um we didn't i think you know the thing uh, about that was such a learning experience because um steve would just ask interesting questions that i had no knowledge about which would mm-hmm. be like hey should we do a branded uh, version of paper, like an office branded version of paper. And I was like, I don't know, I'll find out. You know, there would be things like that yeah. or get on a plane, you know, go to Japan, find out about our IPT in those days where mm-hmm. there was IPTV. I find out our IPTV strategy. So there was a learning, that was all within the first week. There was a <laughs> learning opportunity there that you you jump into the deep end of the... I was, uh, I met him a couple of times, mini golfed with him for a couple of holes once. You it was did. A, it was an RD thing. The man had every number about Microsoft yeah, in his head. Absolutely. He knew every sales group, he knew every product, he knew how where it was performing in different in different locales. Like he was completely immersed in the company. Absolutely. And he was intense. Very and he's funnier than I think anybody knows mm, that hasn't yes. actually talked to him. He's hilarious. Yeah, he has a great sense of humor. Uh, yeah. So it but but it definitely was an intense experience. Sure. <laughs> And, he, and that was relatively early days for him because he came on, it was a 2000. He had just become, yeah, because that was 2003. And right. so I think it had been two, not quite three years that he had become uh, So CEO. still those are the early days. And he it said, was. Any I'm, funny stories that haven't been told yet? Any you can tell. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I might stay away from that. Yeah, yeah, no question. Well, I, you know, I'm in the midst of working on the history of .NET. And so, yeah. you know, what? Him wow. coming in, yeah, it's a thing. I'm going to write a book. Awesome. So, uh, and and one of the things, of, you know, I've come to appreciate him more mm. as I've done the research to realize that you're in those years around the consent decree. Right. And sort of the reshaping of how Microsoft's going to function for the next few that's years. Right. So it must have been very powerful times. Like that's hard work. And, yes. and the first few years of the second person to ever lead the company. Right. 
Mm. It's just not a small thing to do. No. And I was running um, our U.S. public sector and uh, U.S. federal business Mm -hmm. in those. That was the last role I had in the field before coming to corporate. Mm. So, um, yes, DOJ and all of that at that time was very much because that was also our customer. Right. So here's this customer. (laughs) You're calling on your customer who standardized on exchange, by the way, in the middle of all of that. So, yeah, we still ran a business, you know, with them. And at the same time, they're saying, yeah, you know, we don't like the way you guys are doing things. That's right. Mm. So, yeah, very challenging balance. And it's interesting that you stayed in Redmond and kept going. And I mean, for better or worse, the, the, the gender ratio in the vice president level like you're yes. one of relatively few, a dozen? Uh, probably 20. 20 total in, out of In a group of 150, yeah. I would say, yeah. Out oh. of 110,000 people. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. It's a pretty rarefied atmosphere. <laughs> it took atmosphere. me a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I think it took me 23 years. But I took a very different path than most. Sure. And also when I came in, when I came in as an engineer, and even then I actually turned down the first two or three jobs Microsoft offered me at the hmm. time. And I was always purely technical. And even my first seven years at Microsoft were purely technical. And I actually was one of the only people probably still who moved into running a sales and marketing organization from really pure from engineering. engineering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at, when I came in, there were, there were three 300 engineers in the field and only nine were women. Wow. So I came into a very different time um, as well. And I came in with a very different sort of background because I came from international organizations like the World Bank and Intelsat. And so standards in those days, like X400, X500, you know, that that, that's where I was coming from. And I had at that time looked, in fact, I worked at um, NASD, which was the regulatory commission for NASDAQ. And and we did a lot of um, the software standards. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I remember Microsoft coming in and talking to me and showing me messaging with a DOS client. And I was like, no, not interested, you know, it's like, um, and then when I was working at Intelsat, so International Telecommunications and Satellite uh, Corporation, that's when I started talking to Microsoft about uh, land manager, which was in beta. Yeah. Then. Right, yeah. And I actually, again, remember I take risks and that I had thought that, wow, because uh, they were using IBM land server at the time internally. Right. Um, and it was OS2, you know, it was OS2 based in, in those days. And, uh, you know, the first version of Landman, there was a, there, were, there was that partnership between IBM and Microsoft. And we had this code name Tiger, which was the OS2. Isn't that when Jim Alchin comes on board and he was the Banyan Vines guy? That's and right. And they were trying to get all the protocols to interplay with each other. Like, yeah, it was that really was like 1991, problem. something like yeah. that. Yeah. So I started um, really looking at Land Manager uh, for Intelsat, and I actually went forward with the beta version. I'll never forget it for like a thousand seats. And I kept giving Microsoft all this feedback because even then you had to pick your t- you had to pick your protocol yeah, separately. So TCP/IP right. was a, there were all these vendors, yeah, and you'd sure. have to decide IPX, nothing, SPX. you know. And we would be cutting coax cable, like we were really doing all of that. And so I would go like, with the little drill, absolutely, and, the clamps, and then yeah. you'd always have to do it a second time because you yeah, didn't get didn't it. You get can, it right. right. Um, and so I was giving a lot of feedback to, to Microsoft at the time. And they were like, why don't you come, you know, work for us? And I was like, no, I don't, I'm not going to mm. work for a software company. You're just a vendor. Well, that is how I, I you know, to be honest, that is how I looked sure. at it at the yeah. time. Um, but then, uh, so there was, we had, you know, they had talked to me about a messaging specialist 
role as well. Mm. Um, and I turned that down. When the networking systems engineer job came around, um, that's when I thought, hmm, I might go there for, again, my whole famous thing is two years and then two I never years. leave, yeah, right? Um, yeah, so now 23 years later, I'm still here. But um, <laughs> Campbell I, said the same thing to me. He's <laughs> like, I'm only on for 50 shows and I'm out yeah. of here. Yeah. How many shows? 1,498? Uh, Something like that, yeah. 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 <laughs> but I came out, I came out, I became co-host at show 100. Oh, so there have yeah. been two previous co-hosts that each did 50. So I figured I'll do 50. Missed it by that much. Just a what little bit. What was magic about 50 though? I do, it just worked out that way. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah we didn't plan it. No. It's, it's roughly just, a year, right? When you're doing a show uh, a week. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, yeah. But this is great hearing you guys talk about this history because you've been head down in it and you've lived it. And yeah. <laughs> made it. it. And <laughs> I'm just kind of, I wish I had some popcorn right now. This, this is awesome. <laughs> well, it yeah. turns out we're two old networking geeks. Yeah, that's then, right. Right. So I did yeah. as much networking as I needed to to get my <laughs> bulletin boards running no, and all I that stuff. I bought a car. I, my first apartment was paid for off the back of like novel network novel yeah, yeah. yeah right that's, that's what i remember the, the binder i was certified yeah. i was certified 2.11 <laughs> it was good stuff I, I just remember the bindery was the the magic goo where everything was coordinated yeah. and network, network cards were expensive and they were special yeah and novel even made their own server for a while based on the motorola 68000 yeah. it's a heck of a good file server that <laughs> thing made me a ton of money man but no set up and running right that was good business. It, and then it was the gold standard for for quite a while. In fact, yeah. that was when Landman came out. That was yeah. the top it, it competitor. It was the competitor. Yeah. And then it, and it advanced. Well, the, you know, Microsoft turned networking into a built-in product. Right, because just, yeah. NT the was the next iteration of yeah. Landman, yeah. Yeah. which then just was built. And then it wasn't this separate right. kind of thing. That you looked at networking separate than non-network. Like, right. you don't yeah. even yeah. think yeah. like yeah. that yeah. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Windows for Workers, 1992. Right. That's actually what the other thing was when, yeah, which became Windows 95. But I looked at that as well um, at Intelsat and um, and they weren't sharing printers. And I was like, well, could you at least share printers if you were doing like, and so it was, <laughs> and what's the difference between this and Landrand? Because I could see that the strategy either yeah, needed to converge or like, right. Yeah. So um, that was um, codenamed Snowball. Oh, wow. And then nice. became Chicago. Yes. We knew and that. then became, yes. Yeah. And that, so see, I have all the code names of everything. In fact, sometimes we do little, in fact, um, f there is this thing that Satya does, uh, where he brings the CVPs together in Suncadia. Oh, yeah. Up in, uh, in, in, uh, Washington. And one of the things they do is little trivia things. And one of them was to list all these different code names and see who could remember uh, yeah, the most code names. Uh, <laughs> you're in there. Uh, oh my goodness. You're, you have to be there a while Microsoft to have known. Yeah. yeah. Right. But you know, especially if you were on the, uh, engineering side or sure. you're on the technical side, you're going to remember those code yeah, names. Those code they they all said that. all roads lead to Chicago, which was the was Chicago the that was the when, mythical object-oriented operating system where it was no, no that was Windows ninety five. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Chicago became Windows ninety five. Oh, that's yeah. right. Well, you don't get to Whistler Black Comb when you start talking Windows. I think no, you're no, talking about Hailstorm. No, yeah. that was before. It was before Hailstorm. It was when they started thinking that in the future we'll have an operating system that's all object-oriented from you know from the bottom. In up. my memory, that was Black Comb. It was oh. before that. I remember. It never came to pass. No. It was a prototype. They were talking about it a long time. Yeah. Anyway. It was way back there. 
All right. Anyway. We're all dancing I'll in ancient code yeah. names. <laughs> yeah, I'm just you filing s- You'll send us an email like, later. Because it was this. <laughs> it was this. Yeah. So, you know, but before the, before it came out, you know, they had, we had an idea that mm-hmm. it was going to be this all-encompassing thing. And then it turned out to be go really slow. Yeah. Yeah. They had other issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When oh, F- yeah. All the stuff that um, then became yeah, WinFS and things like yeah. that. Longhorn, yeah, Longhorn, right, right. But even before that. Even before that, they were talking about it. This is a blast. I remember Tom Bush talking about it. <laughs> it's what happens when the oh, you know, folks have been doing this for a while all get into trouble. Uh, mm. Where do you want to go from here? Should we talk a little bit about Next Connects? Like this is a great show. It's it's obviously morphed in the past few years. Yep. Yes, it Why has. New York. Um, you know, the first uh, year that we came here, honestly, we, again, before it was Connect, we came and we did it in the meatpacking district. And I'll tell you why we chose New York was because I wanted it to be an internet. I always knew that I wanted it to be online and we weren't really doing the live streaming online events, especially mm. at that time. Sure. Um, and I wanted the time zone to be good for Europe right. and for LATAM. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that we hit uh, certain verticals like finance and public sector. Mm-hmm and things like that. Mm. And so it ended up that we, out of almost any event, got the most sort of international participation and coverage. And so New York just worked out that way. Yeah, wow. And then Spring Studios, it hadn't even been finished yet. You That's know, now they do. Are, f- the you're right, right. We're at Spring Studios. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, we, before they were finished, we were the first contract they ever had for an event because we wow. came in and saw it and liked it. And now, of course, they do Fashion Week here and they do all these yeah, things all here cool to become things. a really, yeah. but we got in while they get in was good, I guess. Yeah, right wow. at the beginning of all of that. <laughs> we also wanted it to look quite different. Yeah. Than, so I really chose it too because I, w- I didn't want it to look like the typical Microsoft, Microsoft event. event. Yeah, right. Not Which enough. Scott commented on the first year we were here at Spring Studios. He was mm-hmm. like, wow. Totally yeah. different. Yeah, totally different. Totally yeah, different. Totally different style. So we're going to see new things. Get some ideas for next year? Uh, definitely. Uh, we will be continuing to build on the, and you'll see it at build, at build too, right? Yeah. So as we, as we sort of go marching forward, um, you'll see a lot more from the data and AI perspective, mm-hmm. for that sure. Seems to have a lot of energy there. Yeah. A lot of energy. And this was really a big, we did a, a partial coming out party at build in mm-hmm. May. Um, if you saw Harry Shum's uh, keynote, which, you know, he said developers That's are the really heart when of they announced the team when, when Har- Harry's at the top and, and, and putting together this whole group and an right. extraordinary group of smart people moved over into that group. Crazy yeah. smart. I don't even know how many yeah. PhDs that yeah. are, you know, it's interesting for us, um, at, for my team, for myself is that, uh, you know, we're working with research mm-hmm. as if it were, a product group. Interesting. Right. And so there's not this, you know, when you work with a, with a typical BG, what we call them, the business groups, mm-hmm. where they're like, like Scott, you know, runs cloud and enterprise. That's the BG. Yep. Whenever you start, you're looking at sort of what is the business side of all of this mm-hmm. in research? It doesn't start that way. No, they don't, they don't work that way at all. No. Yeah. So when you actually really want to grow, um, you want you're thinking, Hey, what is the business impact of this? This is a very interesting, it's, it's, it's a great learning for me because it's a very interesting approach. You, you approach research 
uh, very differently than you approach the rest we, of the company. I mean, we've been under NDA in various forms, being RDs and things. That mm-hmm. I've been able to go to the MSR open days. Mm-hmm. Which generally, is only internal. That's right. But for a few lucky pe- folks, we've been able to go to that. Yeah. We lucked out. We met Don Syme yeah. oh, wow. before F Sharp. Yeah. Right. Actually, I read one of his papers and then I found him at one of the open days. I'm like, dude, I really want you to because he was the guy who really saw, hey, Visual Studio is a platform for experimenting with language, mm. and that's what he was doing. The that's stuff right. he was doing eventually became F Sharp. But right. we just right. got lucky we talked to him before any yep. of that happened. Yep. But it came from those open days. That's right. The, the extraordinary things that the MSR folks are working on. Now. Absolutely. Well, it's a great show. We can't wait to be back next year. And Thank thanks. you so much for coming. Thank you. It's great to have you in talking to all our listeners. And Anytime. Yeah, great no, stuff. Our pleasure. And really a lot of fun and uh, interesting to see where this goes. Because clearly, you know, you've got such a span. Uh, on the dev side, studio and examiner and so forth, and having AI included in that, you know. And data. Yeah, your mm, responsibility yeah. set is just going to keep getting larger. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thanks, Mitra. Thank you. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a